0: Hello and welcome back to an emergency by-election edition of Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. With me is Ian Dunt.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Emergency, emergency podcasts. This is great. This is like the good old days when people used to resign over Brexit deals.
0: Yes, it is. And in case you've missed it, last night saw two by-election losses for the Tories and very big ones. One to the Lib Dems in the Devon seat of Tiverton and Honiton with an almost 30% swing and another to Labour in the West Yorkshire constituency of Wakefield, also with a very decent majority. Ian, I think the public are trying to tell Boris Johnson something. What could it possibly be?
1: No, I can't. I can't work it out. I think that they've been very mercurial about voting intentions, and it's not entirely clear what they're trying to get across. Uh, Tillington and Hoverton is, uh, goes to the Lib Dems by just brain melting numbers. I, I, I literally don't think I've ever seen a swing like that. That's twenty nine point nine percent swing. That's just that's Mad. just kind of it's almost childlike. It's almost silly the number. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I, I mean, I can't. I actually haven't been in in a mood this this good for some time. <laughs> but I'll get over it and, and do political analysis in a moment. But, but for the time being, I'm just mostly staring at that 29.9% swing. I, I can't take my eyes off it. I think I'm, I'm looking at it almost like like a burger when you haven't eaten all day. <laughs>
0: And to add to the joy, the Tory party chairman, Oliver Dowden, has resigned, saying someone has to take responsibility. What could he possibly be implying by that?
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's such subtle, complex political messaging that he's engaging in right there. I know. I mean, I'm guessing now that, you know, the the attempt is to sort of push Cabinet secretaries into doing the same thing. He'd be wanting to keep your eyes out for what Sajid Javid is doing, among others. Um, I hope we don't fall into a... Sort of that predictable thing of, oh, look, you know, what an honourable... You can already hear it from some Tory figures. Oh, what an honourable man. Does the honourable thing. There's nothing honourable about him whatsoever. He's been normalising and encouraging Johnson throughout this process. He doesn't believe a fucking thing that he says. He's not like an actual culture warrior. He's just this kind of cynical minor digging into the earth of his own moral standards to find out what new caverns he can discover. He's absolutely putrid as culture secretary. In fact, I had, co- I had conversations with several people in quite senior positions in various cultural institutions in this country who were saying, no, no, I mean, we're not, you know, there are shows and projects and events that we were going to put on looking at things around sort of minority experiences and racial justice that we're just not doing because we know that what that means now. We know that if we do anything that's honest about Britain's colonial politics, past, we're going to start getting intrusions by the Secretary of State, a Secretary of State who then, with brazen fucking hypocrisy, when he becomes Tory chairman, goes off and does speeches about how, oh, look at the woke threat to free speech, and people don't feel they can say anything unless or else they're going to get cancelled. There's absolutely no moral consistency or political consistency to the man whatsoever. So I think we do need to be wary of this thing when people start going off about, oh, what a bit of honour. He doesn't have any honour whatsoever. It was absolutely discreditable performance in all of the Roles that he had, and it's very nice that we've seen the end of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, you described him as a proper little wannabe all ban this morning, yes. uh, which is quite succinct. But when it, even he seems to realise that the game is up, does it send a message to Johnson?
1: I don't know. But what message is there to get? I mean, this thing of he'll never resign. I mean, I think ultimately, when you do get, you know, your chief of staff, so I suppose it would be Stephen Barclay, who doesn't look like he has the steel to even raise himself in the morning, let alone go and tell the prime minister that he's got to go. But if you get to the point where your chief of staff is there saying you've got to go, even Johnson, I think, would struggle not to take the hint off that. But it would take more resignations b- before that takes place. I mean, what do you think? Do, you, do you, Can you ever imagine him actually deciding I'm going to resign?
0: No, no, I can't. I think uh, I, I might have done a few months ago, but it's now clear that he is never going to. And that frankly scares me because it, tells, it takes us into the realm, doesn't it, of a different kind of country, mm-hmm. a country where you have to force the prime minister from power, which looks more and more, frankly, like a large country on the other side of the Atlantic and what happened when Trump lost the election. And that alarms me. Uh, even though we all say, oh, you know, they're not actually that common. They've got different game plans. They're not blah, blah, blah. It it, it has horrible resonances of that. But I mean, let's talk about how he might actually go. I mean, he survived the vote of no confidence. Was it how long ago was the vote of no confidence it feels like months but was it last week or something <laughs> anyway he, he just survived that so he can't have they can't have another vote of no confidence for i think a year um unless the composition of the 1922 committee changes and that is something that could happen isn't it
1: yeah look their rules are kind of a very secretive. It's extraordinary, by the way, that that we don't have access to those rules. I mean, really, just like on what possible constitutional basis can you justify the fact that we're unable to tell what those basic mechanisms are for changing the prime minister? I know that that's not how it goes; it's the party that you know, whatever. But nevertheless, given how it feels and that, and where we are in politics right now, you know, not being able to have access to even what the terms of engagement like are like is is absolutely absurd. Like they can really change what they want. And when you listen to Tory MPs who were around or on the 1922 committee during the Theresa May period, they will say, look, we were shifting around. We found little bits in these pieces of paper that said we could do it this way, we could do it that way. And that was ultimately one of the things that pushed her chief of staff, Kevin Barwell, to say, look, you've got to go. That they knew there was another attempt coming and that they, weren't, they probably weren't going to survive this one. So again, they can do this stuff. I mean, I just don't believe for a second, like, honestly, any historic or current appraisal of the Conservative Party will tell you that if they think they're heading into extinction, they will find the rule change that needs to be made in order to get rid of the problem that they think is leading them there.
0: But that would take at least a little bit of time. The more imminent threat to him would be if people, if his cabinet started resigning in numbers. Do you think that's a possibility today?
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels more likely now than it has Really, at any previous stage, just because you got, you know, Dowden breaking cover and firing that shot, there's also the fact that he's fatally misjudged the situation by going overseas. And he's, I mean, Johnson's supposed to be away from Britain until next Friday. Like, that is not a sensible plan. I mean, evidently, you know, his let's fly away plan, you know, will he hide in a fridge? Will he go to Afghanistan to avoid a, a vote on Heathrow? You know, his clear thing is when it gets tough, you, you go. That's not actually very sensible, right? It might make it easier for you at the time. But you cease to be able to have firm control over events taking place at home. Not that he necessarily had very firm control, but I could guarantee it would be firmer if he was in number 10 or Checkers than it would be if he's in Rwanda, where he currently is. So on that basis, it doesn't seem sensible to me. And that actually increases the chance of something happening. So you've got to be, I think you've got to be on Resignation Watch over the weekend. But today is the moment of real danger for him. But I think that extends over the weekend, probably if he makes it through to next week. I mean, health warning on all of this, because no one knows what the fuck they're talking about. But if he makes it through until next week, probably you would have thought that's when someone would go over the weekend if it was going to happen.
0: It's a pattern, isn't it, now, where the worse things get at home, the more time he spends overseas (laughs) with Zelensky or whoever, trying to make himself out as a fantastic international statesman. Let's talk about the um, constituencies themselves just a little bit, because they are very, very interesting in very different ways. So the Tiverton upset, that's even bigger than the North Shropshire upset, and the Chesham and Amersham upset, both of which were pretty damn huge what makes the Lib Dems so good at winning these contests?
1: You know it's this is a good opportunity for me to say that I think I've been wrong on several pronouncements that I've made about the Lib Dems over the years, especially since the coalition, where I constantly thought no, you've got to you know create a clearer distinction, you know you've got to apologize more for what happened in coalition if you want to get voters back. I thought after brexit, You know, given what Keir Starmer was and the way he wasn't going to talk about Brexit, it would make sense for the Lib Dems to paint themselves more fully as Remain and just hoover up that vote. I was completely wrong, I think, on both of those counts. What they require is a certain measure of mercuriality. Like it's dangerous for the Lib Dems to have a very specific political identity. In a sense, they feel like an almost like a constitutional necessity, right? That, you know, they, they offer in a two-party, a bludgeoning two-party first-past-the-post system. They offer that key thing of, OK, what if I don't like either of them? What if someone else? And that that allows them to be, you know, to, to appeal to different kinds of voters. I mean, very obviously, people who don't, you know, are unsatisfied with the Tories but are never going to vote Labour, And really, it gives them this sort of longevity, combined with very, very diligent, hardworking local campaigning that makes it work. However, in this case, what we're seeing, quite obviously, is a deal between Starmer and Davey that they have done very quietly with a minimum of fuss. And most importantly, I mean, no different to the deal that Blair was doing with, with Ashdown. In fact, much more modest than that. They're not cooperating to nearly the same extent that Blair and Ashdown did in '97. Um, But also met by that by voters who are reading the signals. Like, Look at what is happening to the Labour vote in Tiverton and Holton. It fell 15.9% to 3.7%. The Lib Dems fell right off the fucking table um, in in Wakefield. They only scored 1.8% there. The voters are reading the signals, they're punishing the Conservatives, they're getting the thing of, nope, here, these are the guys to go for, over here, these are the guys to go for. It's almost similar to the way that pro-unionist parties in Scotland are behaving. When they're taking on the SNP, they'll vote Tory, they'll vote Labour, they'll vote Lib Dem, they'll vote Green, they'll vote whichever way punishes the SNP. That seems to be the process that is happening here. And that much more than any of the numbers that we're seeing on terms of the actual victory, will put proper fear into Tory hearts. This is their worst fucking nightmare. The idea that actually that voters who don't like them are prepared to be pragmatic and transactional um, and to switch whichever way will do them the most fam- damage, that is the absolute worst nightmare for the Conservative Party.
0: Yeah, it's a result to Gladden Naomi's heart, isn't it?
1: Oh, and all of our hearts. If you don't feel joy in your hearts this morning or listening to this podcast, it's all over (laughs) for you. You're fucked. You're fucked. You will never feel joy ever again. Today is a beautiful day. And look outside. It's sunny. The birds are out. It's the beginning of the summer. I mean, today, if basically every morning was like today. I would be a happy-go-lucky guy (laughs) rather than the curmudgeonly misery bore that I usually am.
0: Meanwhile, the Conservative candidate in Tiverton uh, was hiding uh, in a dance studio (laughs) earlier this morning, apparently. She's (laughs) Helen Hereford, a former teacher. And uh, you probably, like a lot of people, will have read journalist Tanya Gold's feature on Tiverton and Honiton a few days ago, which she described her as the worst candidate I have found. I mean, it is remarkable. That the Conservatives put up someone so rubbish, isn't it?
1: Well, is it though? I mean, that that piece was absolutely brilliant, that on her piece. But actually, I thought that one of her observations was was really spot on, where she went, actually, she's kind of a classic Johnsonian Tory. You hear that quality with Dominic Raab on the radio this morning as well. It's the the thing where there's the ignorance, the kind of blazing, you know, unchallengeable, know-nothing rhetoric. And then... The very, the flick to very, very quick to anger, you know, as soon as you're challenged, very, very quick to get crossed, to challenge the integrity, to challenge the motivations of the person who's, who's talking to you. Um, and you saw that with her very much in the same mold that you get it with, with the Prime Minister himself and most of his cabinet, you see the same with Nadine Doris, you see the same with Liz Truss, all of them have, seem to have that feature. And Rob kind of typifies it, right? He got brought onto the radio this morning because Dowden, who was supposed to be doing the morning rounds, you know, had resigned. <laughs> and Johnson himself was in Rwanda. So Rob comes on, and it's exactly the same process, you know, this, this kind of know nothing, half wittery. And then as soon as you challenge this sudden turn to sort of spite and vitriol and challenging the integrity of the person talking to you. So she's, I think she's, she's kind of the classic, yes, utterly, utterly worthless and hopeless and therefore, and pernicious, and therefore perfectly in mould with the kind of party that Boris Johnson runs.
0: Johnson did visit Tiverton, but he didn't, of course, go to Wakefield, mm. which upset a lot of Northern MPs. Uh, understandably so. The Labour majority there is now 4,925, which was at the upper end of Labour's expectations. Would you have liked to see an even bigger majority there or would you have liked to see a bigger endorsement of Starmer? I suppose what I'm trying to get at is how people, there have been rumblings about Starmer in the last couple of weeks, not least, well, not I wouldn't say not least, but uh, certainly uh, you and I had a chat about him in the pub last week where I expressed some serious doubts about his abilities. Um,
1: I thought that was a private conversation, Russ. It because, was a private yeah. conversation. I, I, I assumed we were off the record. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you did not necessarily agree at all, I should say. But um, no, no do not take the no, pressure no, I... off, off Starmer because he has come in for quite a lot of criticism in the last few weeks.
1: No, but I think we need to be straight up that it's still not good enough. I mean, you still don't get the sense, we should be clear about that, you still don't get the sense that there's this great rampaging love of what's going on with Labour. I mean, nobody can possibly claim that. I don't think even the people that they put up for media interviews claim that. You know, it's it's just not there. So what you're getting is people just really fucking don't like Boris Johnson. You know, but we should be, you know, we should be straight up that if they change leader, I mean, this is the reason that it's mostly, the people who are most vociferous and almost passionate about changing leader are mostly sort of Tories. You know, mostly t- pragmatic Tories, you know, whether whether they're in or out of the Parliamentary Party, who are like, look, you've you got to change the leader. And I think if they change if they change the leader, the Tories can win the next election. They can. I, I, I increasingly don't think they can do it if Johnson's in charge. But if they do, it's not like there's this great sort of barrier by virtue of of the love for Starmer or a sort of belief in the in the storytelling or the policies or the ideas or the changes he would make. I mean, it's just not there. I don't... You know, honestly, it can't conceal... Today is not the day for that conversation, but I don't think the results get you over the fact that he he isn't, at the moment, inspiring anything, really, except for those guys in government are dreadful and we don't want any more of them.
0: I mean, undoubtedly, a lot of this is down to Johnson himself, but it's not as though the rest of Britain is not turning into a bin fire at the moment, is it? (laughs) I mean, the number... (laughs) <laughs> the number of problems a country is facing just increases by the week, and the rail strikes this week, the cost of living crisis—you know—there is nothing going well in Britain at the moment. So I don't know I, I disagree with you a little bit on whether the Conservatives could win the next election. Uh, oh, interesting.
1: Oh, that, I, I wish I, I wish I agreed. In the you, you, So you just think basically, no matter who they pick, they're probably fucked.
0: I think so, and I hope so. But well, I'm not sure quite what the ratio is between that thinking and that hoping. <laughs>
1: but. The beautiful thing, I think, as well, is um, the core dynamic that is happening right now that I think does explain what we're seeing is that it, when politics switches to the economic, it's very hard to get a purchase on the culture war angle unless you can deeply connect those things in the way, for instance, that sort of Donald Trump racialized trade policy. Um, and the Tories have tried it, you know, elected on culture war, trying to keep it on culture war. Dowden's the fucking, you know, eminence for that kind of thing. I'm just pushing that culture war. I mean, Boris Johnson being in Rwanda right now, I mean, admittedly, there's other reasons to be there. But, but the, the fact that Rwanda has become so seminal as a country to what he's doing is a key part of that. Rob being torn away from trying to smash up the Human Rights Act, a key part of that. You know, those answers provide nothing in a period of economic sort of terror and hardship. Economics is a fundamentally rational, self-interested conversation about the money in your pocket, how much can you afford to buy, what is your quality of life? And the fact that they are unable to convert that culture war into an economic narrative is, I think, extremely heartening. An extremely heartening indeed. That is one of those things that can give you hope regardless of what's going on in the short or medium term on party politics. That actually you think, no, hang on a minute. They've stumbled into a brick wall on the putrid shit that they've been throwing and throw out there to mix my metaphors. The wall no, that works. Right. The wall is covered in shit. Yeah, that, that's okay. I can I can make that work.
0: <laughs> okay. Just finally, do you have an inkling about who might be the first cabinet member to break ranks, if any of them do have a backbone or sufficient ambition to do so today or over the weekend? No, but I mean,
1: again, I would just look at Satchad Javid as he just looks like the one that you could most easily sort of see. I'm thinking top level. I mean, in terms of, you know, will we get sort of PPSs and sort of junior maybe maybe but you need a big bit you really need one of the sort of big beasts is the wrong word to use because i mean these are complete intellectual lightweights and um, yeah no
0: i mean we have pps's about once a week don't we i mean that's that's nothing new
1: <laughs> no it doesn't really count and no one really knows what it is in fact most of the people that are at pps don't really know what it is either because it isn't really anything it's basically just it, it's a nothing that's designed to increase the size of the payroll vote um so no i would keep my eyes on Sajid Javid
0: That's all from us. Ian, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much. Enjoy your weekend. Feel the joy of life suddenly sweep upon you.
0: (laughs) I will. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another edition of Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
1: Oh God, What Now? is presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunt. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn the producers are Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranervich group editor is Andrew Harrison lead producer Jacob Jarvis and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production